Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Time now for the GX on Agriculture podcast. GX on Agriculture with Doug Falconer. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. Coming up on today's program, there was a fire at the Olimel Hog Barn near Sturgis yesterday. We'll hear from the Vice President of Pork Production at Olimel in Humboldt, Casey Smith. He will explain what happened and what the situation is on the ground right now. We're now halfway through the 2022-23 crop year. David Shednovic, the Assistant Vice President of Grain at CN Rail, will explain how things have been going for them for the first six months of the year. The average Canadian consumer only has a very basic concept about how their food is produced. That's why Stuart Smythe, an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan's College of Agriculture and Bioresources, has been spending time monitoring social media and correcting misinformation about food production. We'll have more with Stuart Smythe coming up on today's program. So all of those stories and much more on today's edition of GX and Agriculture. But first, it's time for the Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. With Phil Spivak from Precision Weather. And Phil, we have some thin cloud here in the Yorkton area today. But once again, our temperatures above normal. Yeah, above normal, and for a couple of hours this afternoon, likely above freezing, so uh, well above normal. At that point, uh, normal minus 8, we've already uh, blown past that, we'll be up about uh, 10 degrees above normal this afternoon. And tonight, there is going to be a bit of cloud cover coming in. The warm front of this system has, is clearing through. It's in its, uh, it's mostly it's across the region right now, a little little bit of uh, western Manitoba still waiting to get into that warmer air, but it does get all of us into this warm air mass. It's not uh, a big air warm air mass, it's a a fairly narrow one. We're narrow enough, in fact, that we've already got the cold front working its way into Saskatchewan this afternoon. It will follow tonight and into tomorrow, so that most of tomorrow we're actually going to be falling uh, rather than rising. Likely a few hours of rise in the morning. We drop to minus 9 tonight, and then we get to minus 7 tomorrow. And then, uh, again, mid-morning probably, maybe late morning, then we drop back. And once we get into the afternoon, it's a much sharper drop because there is a cold air mass sitting up behind this front. And we're going to be running back to a little below normal for the second half of the week. From minus 7 Tuesday morning to minus 23 Tuesday night. And in fact, that's assumed a little bit of cloud cover sticks around. The wind is up a bit today. It's up a little stronger tomorrow right behind this front. I think start beeping in the background here. Uh, right behind the front, it's a little bit stronger. And then into the day on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, the wind comes down. As the wind comes down and the sky partially clears, that gives us that better chance to really see the temperature come down. So minus 23 assumes nothing is completely gone. For those of us where the wind does die down, where the sky does entirely clear, minus 26, minus 27, a possibility. The obvious difference, though, is that to get those cooler readings, you have less wind. So it's actually a colder wind chill at the slightly higher temperatures. The end result of all of those 
back and forth scenarios is that it's much colder by tomorrow night. Minus 13 Wednesday, we're in and out of cloud cover. The air mass is not only cold, it's somewhat unstable. It's just not overly moisture loaded. So while it'll be enough to produce some cloud cover, not likely enough to produce more than uh, passing nuisance type flurry. Best chance for those, by the way, late tonight, early tomorrow, and then again through the middle part of the day Wednesday. But most of us are going to see little or no precipitation. Minus 13 is the high Wednesday. We're still down there in that range for Thursday, a partly sunny day with a high of minus 15. And then on Friday... The boomerang snaps back. We're at minus three. It doesn't stay. The boomerang zooms back because that's what boomerangs do. They come in, they return to where they were, and we're right back down into the minus teens for the weekend. I think we'll do this boomerang one or two more times. The problem is each pass of it into the middle part of next week, it's a little bit cooler when the cold air comes in. So our overall trend through the next uh, one to two weeks looks to be generally cooler. That's Phil Spivak from Precision Weather. Temperatures around the region this hour. The Paw is at minus 3 degrees. Swan River minus 1. Dauphin plus 1. Brandon 0. Show Lake Russell and Roblin minus 3. Regina, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, Winyard, Wadena, Kelvington plus 3. Saskatoon is at minus 1. Hudson Bay plus 1. The Yorkton-Melville region has a mainly cloudy sky, a south wind at 13 kilometers an hour. 76% is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus 1 degree. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus 5 degrees. Yesterday, Yorkton reached a high of 0 and dropped to a low of minus 6 there was no precipitation recorded in the 24-hour period ending at midnight last night. The normal high for this date is minus 8. The normal low is minus 19. The sun rose in Yorkton at 8.07 this morning, and it will set at 6.01 tonight. Extreme temperatures for Manitoba and Saskatchewan yesterday the Manitoba hotspot was McCreary, which got up to plus 6 degrees. The cold spot was Churchill at minus 29 degrees. The Saskatchewan hotspot yesterday was Maple Creek at plus 8 degrees. The cold spot was Stony Rapids at minus 26 degrees. And that's a look at your agriculture weather. There was a fire at the Ole Mill Hog Barn near Sturgis yesterday. Casey Smith is the Vice President of Pork Production at Ole Mill in Humboldt. Yeah, a very unfortunate event, and um, our staff were on site. They spotted the fire, called it into uh, 911 immediately, obviously exited and uh, the building, and uh, waited for the fire department to come. But unfortunately, just for the size of the facility and, and how quickly the fire spread, uh, the fire department wasn't able to sort of do anything more than sort of monitor the situation. And uh, the, unfortunately, the barn uh, was completely destroyed. He says there were a significant number of pigs inside. There was about approximately 10,000 animals inside the facility. Smith says the pigs varied in age. Yeah, it's uh, it's part of a production flow, so there would have been a young pigs and older pigs and uh, throughout the barn and there's basically two wings in the barn and so it's just uh, yeah it's a continuous flow sort of operation. 
He says they were fortunate that a nearby barn wasn't affected by the blaze. Yeah, there's another barn about a half a kilometer away. It was totally unaffected, and the staff will continue to work in that facility as well. So, Smith adds the feed mill was left unharmed. No, the feed mill is far enough away from the barn that uh, it was unaffected by the fire. He says the fire won't have much of an impact on local grain producers. In terms of the feed volume there, it wasn't overly significant. The other barn that was uh, within a half a kilometer, it does have a feed mill, so we'll still be able to move feed through that uh, feed mill there as well. And we have other locations nearby as well that we uh, accept feed grains as well. Smith says an investigation into the fire is now underway. Yep, fire inspectors and insurance uh, inspectors will be there as well. He had these final comments. Yeah, I think once we, you know, assess the uh, the situation there, we'll determine sort of next steps going forward. He adds eight people work at the two locations, but no jobs will be lost. That's Casey Smith, the vice president of pork production at Oli Mill in Humboldt. Please stay tuned. Your ag review portion is coming up next. GX ninety four ag review. Saskatchewan Agriculture Minister David Merritt will be leading a delegation to India and the United Arab Emirates for a trade mission and to attend the Pulses Conclave in Mumbai, India and the Gulford Exhibition in Dubai. The mission aims to help Saskatchewan gain a better understanding of international stakeholders' current and future needs. The mission also provides an opportunity to learn about any challenges faced by stakeholders and how the government of Saskatchewan can provide support. Minister Merritt will promote the sustainability of Saskatchewan's crop production during the mission, as well as strengthen trade, research and investment ties with some of Saskatchewan's long-standing partners. Additionally, the mission will help companies and industry organizations within the province expand their relationships with stakeholders. In 2022, Saskatchewan was the United Arab Emirates and India's largest supplier of lentils, accounting for 70% and 55% of the country's imports, respectively. Saskatchewan has a network of nine international trade offices, two of which are in India and the United Arab Emirates. Canada must let U.S. processors of cheese, ice cream, yogurt, milk powder and other dairy products have access to its import quotas to resolve a second U.S. dairy trade challenge. That's according to Washington's new agricultural trade boss. Doug McCallop, chief agricultural trade negotiator for the U.S. Trade Representative's office, says that Canada's second attempt at allocating dairy tariff quotas shut out most of the firms providing only a fraction of the access promised in the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement on trade. On January 31st, the U.S. requested a dispute settlement panel for the second time, arguing that Canada's revised quota allocation rules failed to fix problems that prompted an, additional, an initial dispute panel to rule last year that Canada's practices violated its trade obligations. But Canada's Trade Minister, Mary Ng, in response has promised to defend the supply management system and has accused the U.S. of trying to renegotiate the terms of the trade deal 
through the dispute settlement process. Ottawa has lined up a new federal deputy minister for agriculture and a new president for the Canadian Federation uh, Canadian Food Inspection Agency, both to take office later this month. Associate Deputy Minister of Defense Stephanie Beck becomes Canada's senior ag bureaucrat, effective February 20th. And Public Health Agency of Canada President Dr. Harpreet Kochar becomes the new president of the CFIA starting February 27th. As Deputy Ag Minister, Beck will replace Chris Forbes, who was shuffled to become Deputy Minister of Environment and Climate Change, also effective February 20th. As CFIA President, Kochar replaces Dr. Sadika Mithani, who retired effective January 20th. The CFIA's Executive Vice President, Jean-Guy Forgeron, has been in charge of the agency on an interim basis since then. CN and CP Rail supplied a combined 71% of hopper cars ordered in Grain Week 27, an improvement from the previous week's 63%. The improvement in performance reflects improved performance for each of CN and CP. In supplying 77% of hopper cars ordered on time in Week 27, CN's order fulfillment performance improved from the 71% order fulfillment performance seen in week 26. CN performance once again fell short of the 90% threshold, having now not reached that threshold in 14 of the last 15 weeks. CP order fulfillment performance also improved this week, with the railway supplying 66% of cars ordered, an improvement from the 56% order fulfillment performance seen in week 26. This marks the 22nd consecutive week that CP has fallen short of the 90% performance threshold. Argentina's 2022-23 soybean crop is likely much smaller than official projections as high temperatures and a lack of moisture cut into yields that's according to an update from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Buenos Aires attaché. The USDA post from the South American country pegged the soybean crop at only 36 million metric tons, which would be 9.5 million metric tons below the USDA's current official projection. While recent rains will help yields to some extent, the attaché noted more precipitation will be needed in February, for a substantial recovery. According to the report, early planted soybeans will see substantially lower yields than normal, noting late planted soybeans still have time to recover if rains improve, but the extent of late planting will likely place a ceiling on yields even in areas where drought and heat conditions moderate. Argentina's sunflower production is also expected to be hurt by the dry conditions with the USDA attaché pegging the crop at 4 million metric tons. That compares with the USDA's official estimate of 4.6 million metric tons. Demand for beef in China is expected to rise as the country still has relatively low per capita consumption. That's according to JBS. They say Brazil and the U.S. where JBS has meat facilities are well positioned to meet China's growing demand for beef as the major food importer reopens after COVID-19 restrictions. 
They add that China is competitive in chicken and pork production since these have shorter cycles, while for beef there is a need for more land and the production cycle is longer. Recently, the CEO of poultry and pork processor BRF said he was optimistic about China's meat demand returning to normalcy after the Chinese New Year celebrations. He cited forecasts that by 2050, the world will have to produce 50% more food to meet global demand, also pointing to population growth as a factor driving consumption. And that's the Ag Review portion of our program. It's mainly cloudy and minus one degree in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at 1 o'clock. We're now halfway through the 2022-23 crop year. David Shetnovic is the Assistant Vice President of Grain at CN Rail, and he has their grain movement results for the month of January. CN shipped over 2.64 million tons of Western Canadian grain and processed grain products in January by a carload, with the volume of grain moved directly from the interior via container in addition to that. That's the second highest ever volume of Western Canadian grain movement recorded by CN for the month of January. He explains how those numbers compare to its grain plan guidance. So CN's guidance for maximum end-to-end grain supply chain capacity outside of winter between bulk grain and processed grain products is up to 6,250 cars per week during winter. Remembering that to achieve those levels requires having sufficient demand to meet those levels, no mainline disruptions, fluidity across shipment corridors, normal winter operating conditions, and other considerations. Through grain shipment weeks 23 to 26, which pretty much takes you through January, the end-to-end supply chain on CN achieved 5,750, 6,850, 6,650, and 6,100 cars worth of shipments, respectively. Shednovic compares demand for hopper cars this January to last January. Well, that was one of the interesting things that happened during January this year. Demand for grain movement was lower than you'd normally expect. During grain shipment weeks 23 to 26, CN averaged 4,200 orders per week for CN supplied equipment compared to over 4,800 per week back in January 2021. That is not a small difference. We had weeks in January where we didn't even have the demand to achieve the top-end guidance for grain supply chain capacity. Planned new demand for bulk grain movement was below grain plan guidance throughout the month of January except for one week. Some market factors that led to the reduced demand. The impact of the record Australian crop on the competitiveness of Western Canadian grain in export markets was most certainly a factor affecting demand for grain movement. It's also worth mentioning that although grain production in Western Canada recovered this year, thanks to better weather, total available supplies in Western Canada for the 22-23 crop year are the lowest they've been since the 2017-18 crop year, when you take last year out of the mix. Remember that carry-in stocks were at record low levels to start the crop year. The cupboards were very bare and grain shipment volumes were pretty low for the first six or seven weeks of the crop year as a result of that. Shednovic says some other factors affected grain movement in January as well. So weather and terminal outages around the holidays didn't help the supply chains cause early in the month. Over the December holiday period, there are specific periods of time when grain terminals are not operating. This past December, most terminals were shut down starting around noon on Christmas Eve, with some remaining closed right through Boxing Day. Then the same thing happens around New Year's. Terminals shut down around noon on New Year's Eve, and almost all of them remain shuttered pretty much through New Year's Day. All of that downtime 
takes capacity out of the supply chain, and the stop-start nature of the terminal operations around the holidays hurts supply chain fluidity. So it's normally slower coming into the new year. Grain deliveries drop right off during the two grain shipment weeks that stretch over the holidays. The supply chain was also recovering from a nasty stretch of extreme winter weather in December. An extreme cold outbreak between December 17th and December 26th, along with back-to-back winter storms in Vancouver prior to Christmas, and a severe winter storm that affected eastern Canada and the Midwestern U.S. commencing right before Christmas, all had significant impacts on supply chain capacity. Once the cold weather broke, the supply chain still had to contend with the reduced capacity and reduced grain pipelines due to the terminal shutdowns. But he says the CN network recovered quite quickly. So CN network velocity recovered quickly after these impacts, due in large part to the fundamental changes that CN made in advance of harvest to its operating procedures, as well as specific changes that CN made to its winter operating plan. Network car velocity, which is the average miles per day traveled by loaded and empty active system foreign and private cars on CN lines, was in the range of 214 to 221 miles per day during January. CN's network velocity during January was also comparable to the network velocity recorded during the summer and early fall, which was the best seen since 2016. Shednovic says there were a few other items of note that affected supply chain capacity in January. Well, it's fair to say that there's been no change in terms of the Port of Vancouver protocols surrounding the loading of grain to vessel during inclement weather. The ability to do it is there, but it is not utilized much by the grain terminals. Besides the issues with the weather, Delays in inbound vessel freight resulted in grain terminal space issues throughout the month of January in the Port of Vancouver. When vessel freight falls back and the rail cars keep coming, affected terminals run out of space. There were also mechanical issues at multiple grain terminals that reduced terminal productivity. If grain terminal space isn't being made to unload grain from rail cars, then loaded grain trains can't be moved forward. CN is forced to hold back trains en route to port and trains at origin in the country until the situation improves. Ultimately, the end-to-end supply chain is negatively affected as delayed returns of empty hopper cars back to the prairies for the next load impact CN's overall spotting program for the next week. Now that we're six months into the crop year, he outlines where CN Rail is at for crop year to date on grain movement out of western Canada. Through the first six months of the crop year, CN moved over 15.2 million tons of western Canadian grain and processed grain products via carload compared to 10.4 million tons at the same time last year and 13.6 million tons for the three-year average. The operational changes CN implemented last spring and summer continue to drive very strong and consistent results for the grain supply chain in Canada. Halfway through the crop year, CN has regularly set both weekly and monthly grain movement records. As the grain industry moves into the second half of the crop year, CN remains focused on collaboration and communications with our customers to get their products to market. That's David Shednovic. He is the Assistant Vice President of Grain at CN Rail. Livestock Market Conditions U.S. live cattle futures for April are trading at 165.05, up 110. June live cattle trading at 160.32, up 57. March feeder cattle trading at 187.22, up 82. April feeder cattle trading at 191.65, up 97. April lean hogs trading at 85.47, up 215. 
May lean hogs trading at 95 even, up 180. And that's the livestock market conditions. The average Canadian consumer only has a very basic concept about how their food is produced. Recent surveys indicate the general public puts farmers in the top three of most trusted occupations. But what does that really mean? Stuart Smythe is an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan's College of Agriculture and Bioresources. He is also the industry-funded research chair for Agri-Food Innovation. Smythe spends time monitoring social media and correcting misinformation about food production, whether it is intentional or unintentional. Smythe says while consumers trust farmers, there are more questions about technologies and practices used to produce their food. We start to see trust being sort of a mile wide and an inch deep. When we've started to burrow down and ask consumers more questions about various parts of the, particularly the front end side of things, so we did this around plant breeding. We asked them, will new plant breeding technologies, what can it contribute? So 60% said more affordably priced food. Yet 30% are saying that it's gonna lead to more health problems. So again, even though we'd get some positive reinforcement in that innovations in plant breeding are going to lead to lower priced food, it's also triggering concerns for roughly one out of three consumers. Smythe says 60% of Canadians say they want more information on how food is produced, but what kind of information are they looking for? It makes us scratch our head a little bit, right? So when the 60% are saying, well, we want more information about how food is produced, is it that they want information that conforms with their bias? Or do they actually want to know what's going on? You know, the steps involved and the, the metrics, right? Everything isn't, you know, fluffy bunnies and unicorns that this is a tough industry, right? And calves are born dead and cows will die. And these, you know, we'll have crop failures. That doesn't necessarily conform with someone in Toronto or Vancouver that really wants a nice, warm, fluffy story. There seems to be one consensus amongst most Canadian consumers. They don't like paying more for food at the supermarket. One thing that is being very clear from consumers is that they're getting very fed up with high food prices. And they're taking that anger out on the retail sector. But at some point, the question comes, is that blowback going to get pushed up the supply chain? And if that's the case, what can agriculture do now to be proactive to say, here's what we're doing to try and ensure that we're as productive as we possibly can be, which helps keep food prices lower. The problem does not reside at the farm. It resides between the farm and the retailer. And it's not just a matter of passing the buck. I'm not saying that we're trying to shift the blame, but what agriculture has an opportunity to do is to be more transparent about what we're doing, the innovative technologies, the fertilizer, the chemicals, the growth hormones that are essential to keeping food price increases as low as they possibly can be, because that's information that the public's looking for. Stuart Smythe is an associate professor in the University of Saskatchewan's College of Agriculture and Bioresources. His remarks are from a speech at the Saskatchewan Beef Industry Conference last month in Saskatoon. Coming up, Smith, Smythe will talk about European Union food uh, policy 
and why it should not be used as a model for North America to preserve the environment. The European Union is implementing what it calls a farm-to-fork strategy, which contains measures it says are designed to protect the environment. They include reducing fertilizer use by 20%, and that includes manure, as well as triple the amount of organic agriculture to 25%. Stuart Smythe is an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan. He says reducing fertilizer cuts food production, while a sharp rise in organic production will not improve greenhouse gas emissions. It not only affects the grain side of things, it affects the livestock side of things and the use of antimicrobials. And again, this is all designed to be more increasingly environmentally sustainable. There's no evidence, and the evidence I have seen, if we look at it from a, um, greenhouse gas emissions and carbon sequestration, organic production is actually the worst crop production system if we're looking at carbon sequestration. So Europe is actually advocating for higher greenhouse gas emissions, less carbon sequestration by moving to that type of a system. Smythe says between 1995 and 2019, food production in the European Union only rose by 7%, while during the same period it was 38% in the United States. Smythe adds if the EU had adopted GM crops, total greenhouse gas emission would be reduced by 7.5%. I will go to any conference around the world, and I have done for several years, and I will argue nowhere in the world are farmers more sustainable than they are in the prairies in Saskatchewan. We have the most sustainable farmers of anywhere in the world. And so by not adopting innovative technologies, then subsequently has impacts on sustainability. The EU is releasing millions of tons more carbon emissions than they need to had they adopted biotechnology 25 and 30 years ago. And so this then impacts their productivity. So because they've got lower productivity, their food prices are higher. Smythe has one concern on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, that being the amount of money invested in public research in agriculture over the past two or three decades. Those additional funds could be used to develop more drought or insect tolerant crops or crop with improved yields. The amount of funding has dropped by about 10% over that period. We're even seeing that with the Ag Canada strategies, right? So the rollout will be in another couple of months here on the fourth five-year plan. The amount of funding that the federal government puts into Ag Canada's five-year strategies has remained constant. So when you factor in inflation over the last 15 years, we're actually investing less money into our public institutions to do research. The dollar amount's been frozen, and inflation means that we're able to, to generate less research per dollar than we were 15 and 20 years ago. Stuart Smythe is an associate professor in the University of Saskatchewan's College of Agriculture and Bioresources. His remarks are from a speech at the Saskatchewan Beef Industry Conference last month in Saskatoon. It's time now for the Commodities Update. Commodities Update. Canola futures are trading down across the board this hour. March canola trading at 8.3080, down $1.40. May canola trading at 8.2190, down $2.70. March Minneapolis wheat 
trading at 9.30 and three quarters, up a half a cent. March Kansas City wheat trading at 9.08 and three quarters, down a quarter of a cent. March Chicago wheat trading at 7.88 and a quarter, up two and a quarter cents. March corn trading at 6.83 and a quarter, up two and three quarters of a cent. March soybeans trading at 15.41 and three quarters, down three quarters of a cent. March oats trading at 3.73 and three quarters, down three cents. And that's the commodities update. The executive director of the Swine Health Information Center is encouraging pork sector stakeholders to review and provide feedback on the organization's 2023 plan of work. Dr. Paul Sundberg explains the plan of work. Yeah, so a little bit of background. Let's start with the Swine Health Information Center in 2015 when it was formed. Um, uh, our goal, our mission is to address emerging diseases. We monitor for them, we do targeted research, we look at um, swine data to analyze it for emerging diseases, all, around, all about things that emerge in the pork industry. And when we go back to 2015 and, and start with this, we have kind of a blank slate and we say, what should we be doing? What about emerging diseases should we be focused on? And that's really the development of the plan of work. We do that each year. We try to start with a blank page every year. There are some things that hold over because there are some things, some programs and some things that are happening that are so valuable that we just need to keep them going. But the idea behind a plan of work is to put the lines along the side of the road. So we have um, a direction and we have an organized and agreed upon direction um, with our board of directors. That's the that's probably the most important point that we all sit down and we discuss where we need to go during the next year. What do we need to get done during the next 12 months and how do we put a plan around that? And that's really the formation of the plan of work. He outlines the key priorities in the 2023 plan of work. In order to make the plan of work for every year, we put um, big big buckets together. And, and then you have all kinds of details within that. But our, our big buckets, our sections, are monitor and mitigate risk to swine health. Um, you've got to respond to emerging disease. You've got to do dis surveillance and discovery of emerging diseases, and then you improve swine health information. Those are the big pieces that really address our mission statement, which says we monitor, we uh, are prepared to respond, prevent, respond, recover by, by targeted research, and we make sure that we have the information out to the industry that we need to have in order to improve the health of the nation's herd. So those are the big areas that we work on every year. And then we put things underneath those and put some detail to each of those. Um, people can find that detail in the, at swinehealth.org. The 2023 plan of work is posted on swinehealth.org. And I'm really excited about getting working on it, but I'd really like to hear people's reactions to it. One of the most important aspects of a plan of work for SHIC, for the Swine Health Information Center, is that it continues to be a work in progress um, throughout the year. Our plan of work is set in January, 
But as things happen throughout the year, we certainly have the ability to change, to move, to act quickly, and to respond. And that can change our plan of work. And we need to have people's input and feedback in order to make that happen. Dr. Sunberg explains how anyone can get more information or provide input. Well, um, probably the best way to get information is to look at the complete plan of work on swinehealth.org. That's an easy click. It's posted right up on the website. Um, to provide input, um, my as well as Dr. Megan Niederwerders, the associate um, uh, for the Swine Health Information Center, the associate director, um, our, our contact is right up on the website. And if anybody uh, reads a piece of this plan of work, reads through it and has a different idea or a different need or a suggestion of how to implement it, how to make it happen, we're glad to have that input anytime. So our contact information is on swinehealth.org and uh, anybody is welcome to, to give us their ideas anytime throughout the year. And he offers these final thoughts. One of the things we try to do with the um, annual plan of work is to make sure that we get as much broad industry input as we can. Um, the plan of work is put together not by the staff of the Swine Health Information Center, not by me, not by Dr. Niederwerder. It's really put together by the industry. We... Um, ask, we survey, we ask people, we ask uh, academics, we ask veterinarians, we ask producers, what do, should we be focusing on in the next 12 months to make happen? It may be big and it may be hard, but we're going to try to make it happen within 12 months if we can. Give us your best ideas. And uh, that's really the formation of the plan of work. And that's that's the thing that I think is good to emphasize is that this isn't necessarily a only a focused swine health information center activity it's uh, we try to make it as much of an industry activity as we can so we get as broad of look and as much power behind the plan of work as we can get that's dr paul sunberg the executive director of the swine health information center it's now one o'clock that means it's time to check the gx94 precision weather forecast for the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Moosum, and Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions today. Mainly sunny, winds west-southwest at 20 to 35, gusting higher at times, a high of plus 2. For tonight, partly to mainly cloudy, winds west-northwest at 10 to 20, a low of minus 9. For tomorrow, cloudy, winds north-northwest at 20 to 40, a high of minus 7, then falling, tomorrow's low, minus 23. For Wednesday, partly to mainly cloudy, winds west-northwest at 10 to 20, a high of minus 13. For Thursday, partly sunny, a high of minus 15, and Friday, a mix of sun and cloud, a high of minus 3. In the paw and Show Lake Russell and Roblin, all at minus 3 degrees. Swan River minus 1, Dauphin plus 1, Brandon is at 0. Regina, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, Winyard, Wadena, Kelvington all reporting in at plus 3 degrees. Saskatoon minus 1, Hudson Bay plus 1. 
The Yorkton-Melville region has a mainly cloudy sky, a south wind at 13 kilometers an hour. 76 percent is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus one degree. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus five degrees. That's your agriculture weather, and that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow at 12.15 for another edition of the program. You've been listening to the GX on Agriculture podcast. 